Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Our guest today is a medical doctor on a mission to create a better medical internet. Dr. Jen Gunter has been called Twitter's resident gynecologist, the internet's OBGYN. She's a fierce advocate for women's health. In addition to her academic publications, Dr. Gunter is a contributor to the New York Times, and her work has appeared in USA Today, The Hill, The Cut, and Self. She's the author of a new book, The Vagina Bible. Dr. Jen Gunter, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about your book and your work in a minute, but first, let's talk about you. Okay. I read the story of how you decided to become a medical doctor when you were 11 and had a skateboarding accident. Talk about that and talk about how that experience changed you. Sure. So I was, uh, I think I was 10 when I had the accident. I can't remember if I was 10 or 11, but I uh, had a skateboard and I fell. I wasn't very good, but I thought I was. And so I fell on my back and it hurt really badly and I ruptured my spleen. So my mother said it was my fault for falling. So she just left me at home with my ruptured spleen. And the good news is there was a pediatric surgeon who lived down the street. And so the next day, so I spent the whole night with a ruptured spleen, which isn't very good. And the pediatric surgeon said, hey, I know Jen and she's not a complainer. So if she was up all night crying, maybe you might want to take her to the doctor. So fast forward, we we go to the doctor. We have to go by bus because my mother didn't drive because that's a sign of weakness. So just to give you an idea what the upbringing was like. <laughs> <laughs> and so I walked two blocks and took two buses with a ruptured spleen. And anyway, so I had to have all these invasive tests to figure out what was going on because in those days, there was no such thing as CT scans or ultrasound or MRI. There was no non-invasive imaging. So I had to have an emergent angiogram. And I was really just fascinated. I was in the interventional radiology suite. There's all these people dressed in the theater of the operating room. And they came to sedate me. They were going to give me some Valium, a shot. And I said, no, I, I want to watch it. And they <laughs> kind of stopped. And I was precocious for 11. That might also surprise everybody. Uh, and very tall. I think I was already 5'8 or 5'9. So I probably looked 16. And uh, they said, can you hold still? And I was used to doing what adults told me. So I said, yes, I can. So I held very still and they let me watch the whole thing on the monitor. And it hurt a little bit, but it was really interesting. And the interventional radiologist explained everything to me. And I was just fascinated by it. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. So then the good news is my mother's negligence saved my spleen. I didn't have to have it out. They were able to monitor it. But the bad news or good news, depending on your perspective, is they found out I had kidney disease and I had to have a kidney removed. So I had a lot of interaction with the healthcare system that summer, as you can imagine. And I just got really fascinated by it. And I thought, well, I think I'm going to do this. And you grew up in Canada? I grew up in Canada in Winnipeg. And later, as a patient, you realized there was a lot of medical mis- and disinformation out there. How did your experience as a patient, a mother of premature babies, shape your role as an activist on healthcare education and information? Well, I have to say, before I had that experience, I didn't think as much about the patient experience, or I couldn't have thought about the patient experience in a way. And I want to be really clear. I mean, you don't have to have cancer to be an oncologist. You don't have to have a neurological condition to be a neurologist. However, understanding how hard it is to be a patient puts things in perspective for you. So, so yeah, I was sort of 
placed firmly on this other side where there was no no ability to control anything going on. And I started to turn to the internet and found that I was had such trouble finding good quality information. And I got lured in by blogs and alternative medicine sites. And at one point, I almost took my son to China for a stem cell treatment because when you have a kid that's not getting better with conventional medicine, and and even I knew that we'd exhausted conventional medicine or we were at the limits of conventional medicine, these ideas stick in your mind and they're really hard to get out. That is surprising that even as a trained medical professional, you ran into this. Now, I've read somewhere else where your motto is Facts matter. Mm-hmm. We like it. It's, right. It's pretty good. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that disinformation, particularly in the area of women's health. The problem is, is, you know, you can be as facts matter as I am, and then still it's the emotional ties. You know, we're so drawn by stories, and we, there's such an emotional aspect to things when you're sick. And if you haven't been listened to or science doesn't have an answer for you, which is unfortunately very common for many medical conditions that women face. If you've been systematically ignored or systematically not listened to, and I even wasn't listened to at times with my kids in the office, and I found that really hard. I mean, I would say, like, why would you think I would make this up? Like, that's kind of weird. But you find that when you're disenfranchised, it's so easy to go to the person who seems to not be treating you that way. But of course, it's all a veneer. It's no different than the, you know, the sideshow carnival person offering to see across my palm and I'll tell you your future. They're offering to be your best friend, but they're they're not actually giving you science. I've read your work in the New York Times, but you really came on my radar recently as I was scrolling through Twitter. And I saw your response to Marianne Williamson, where she claims that she's pro-science and pro-medicine. And I had approached this from a journalistic critique of how journalists and other people and what we do were treating this. A lot of the late-night comedians have um, had fun with this. A lot of commentators have had fun with it. But you took a very different approach. You provided a factual critique of her book, A Course on Weight Loss, and let her words speak for themselves. I was curious, why did you decide that you want to take on a presidential candidate in this environment? Because I'm sure that the reaction on Twitter, if it was anything like the reaction I got— was pretty strong. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's not my first time taking on a presidential candidate. I mean, I took on Ben Carson over his, you know, lies about the need for fetuses to study for health reasons. So I was prepared for that kind of backlash. And, you know, I don't really care because the facts matter. And you, you can be a person and say, well, you know, I'm not fat shaming or I've only tried to help people. And so I just thought, well, let's let your words speak for themselves. And these are the things you wrote. And so I just thought I would take the words out. I would read some passages. I promote put some videos up as well. Because frankly, some of the language is so full of mysticism. I Like, I don't even understand it. I graduated medical school when I was 23. And if I can't understand what you're writing about medicine, then I'm like, not sure how well that's speaking to everybody. I mean, it's just pure mysticism mixed with components of fat shaming and completely no capacity to understand how to deal with weight issues, how to talk about weight issues. It's all the worst things possible. And so I just thought I would put those words out and let them speak for themselves. Is it more important to correct people in the public domain, people who are leaders, people who are high-profile people, people who are running for president on these issues? It seems to me that um, there was a time when politicians sort of stayed out of those things. Now we have an 
anti-vaxxer who was president of the United States and somebody like Ms. Williamson who has been writing these things for a long time, has a huge following. Is it important to really – to call that that out even more so than just the person on Twitter who's making a claim that is not true, which I know never happens on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I think each level of additional privilege that you have, you have to be ever so more mindful because people are listening to what you say. And if you're hoping to lead the country, you're going to be involved in health policy and – it's really important for me to know if you believe in magic or if you believe in facts. Right. And if you believe magic about one thing, then what else do you believe magic? Or is this whole thing a grift? I think people need to know what is it? Do you have a complete lack of understanding about medicine and you're going to run a country based on mysticism? I don't want that. Or was this all a grift to publish a book and elevate your platform? Well, I don't want that as my president either. So I just try to keep my commentary to what I know. I don't feel I can critique people's conversations about climate change or critique their conversations about roads and highways, but I can certainly critique what they write about medicine. Well, I thought it was extraordinarily well done. And you talked about healthcare policy. You know, you mentioned you're from Canada and you are, I believe, you're licensed both there and here. I'm board certified in both countries. Your personal and professional lives are sort of a comparative experience in the healthcare systems of both countries. And here's what you said. You said America is the only first world country who hasn't figured out how to take care of all of its people equitably. There is something very wrong with the idea that genetics or income can determine whether you get surgery. Since we are at a moment where these issues, because of the presidential campaign, because of some of the things we were just talking about, are being discussed and I don't really think that we consult. I worked in the Senate Finance Committee mm-hmm. during Clinton health care, and we didn't consult any actual doctors right. when we did that. From a policy perspective, how do we change that problem that you've identified? And I think that is really one of the things that is at the core of this debate. Well, it's such a bizarre concept to me to tie your health insurance to your employer. Like, why is your employer responsible for that? I mean, your employer also doesn't keep your air clean and your employer doesn't keep your water supply clean. The government does that. The government controls, hopefully, is involved with our air quality and the government controls our water quality. Those are things that keep us healthy. So I find it such an odd concept to tie it to your place of employment. I'm not talking about like as an added benefit on top because a lot of countries that have universal health care also, that's a a benefit some employers offer. But I'm talking about your basic health care. And this idea that that people are paying hundreds or thousands of dollars a month for insulin when the patent was given for free by Canadians, right? So it's so cruel to say that, well, yeah, sorry, you're going to have to spend $1,500 a month on your insulin and too bad. Or, you know, I mean, for my kids, I mean, when they were born, they needed an injection once a month called Synergist to protect them from a virus called RSV, which is devastating for premature infants. And in fact, my son got it after he graduated out of not needing the shot anymore. So he was two and a half and he almost died in the ICU from the virus. That's how important it is to prevent it. And, you know, the the shot's $1,000, right? You have two kids. Who can afford that? We had really good health insurance and had Medicaid backup for a time because you get it based on birth weight and prematurity. And we ran out of our oxygen benefits. Both my kids were on oxygen And we ran out of the amount of oxygen that we were allotted. We used up that supply for the year. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Never mind cruel and everything else. Like, So this idea that healthcare is a privilege 
doesn't seem right to me. Healthcare, everybody deserves healthcare. Absolutely. I read an interview where you said that you've had wonderful but also horrible healthcare experiences. And you went on to say that had you been less empowered or facing systemic racism, things could have turned out way worse in some situations. Could you elaborate a little bit? Because I think that's a really important point that when we talk about healthcare and when we talk about this issue that people really don't mention. Yeah. I mean, I think that really opened my eyes and, you know, maybe filled me a little bit with shame. And gosh, I I hope I've never been like that as a physician. But all we can also do is also learn and try to do better going forward. But yeah, my son, Oliver, the one who was in the ICU, had been having trouble breathing and because I'm a doctor and a mom and he'd been in and out of the hospital. I was like, eh, that's not really that bad. And then he was kind of getting worse and worse. So I took him to an urgent care clinic and the urgent care clinic was like, uh, we're going to call 911. So we went by ambulance to the hospital and I was like, oh. So we get there and he's really quite ill. Now I'm like, oh, totally undercalled this. We're there. His oxygen levels are low. He's probably got influenza, maybe not. We're waiting for the tests. And he perked up for about five minutes. You know, sometimes you can, kids can look like they're so well enough for like five minutes, they look fine. And during the five minutes, he looked okay. The doctor came in and the doctor said, well, yeah, he looks fine. You can go home. And I said, well, I mean, we had transferred by ambulance here. And I'm not trying to like pull rank and say, I'm also one of your colleagues here at this institution. <laughs> but I was super tired. It was like four in the morning. And my other son's at home. And I just said, well, I, I think that he's actually really ill. And he just looks good now that you walked in, but he's really sick. And he accused me of wanting what's called a social admission. So a social admission in medicine is this horrible term that some doctors use to sort of when the patient can't you know, look after themselves and they need to come to the hospital to sort of give the parents a break. And I guess I was kind of raised that if, if things are pretty desperate and someone needs to come to the hospital, then they need to come to the hospital. And that can be for a variety of different reasons. And I said, well, I, my son's like really ill. And he, he was really cruel to me. And I started to cry. And I'm not, you know, a crier much except during some movies. And, <laughs> um, and if I had listened to him and left, my son would have died because he, we ended up staying and he was in the ICU for a week. And he was really ill. And if I'd got home, he could have decompensated. And it just really struck me that this guy was so just horrible and cruel. And here he was there with my sick baby who had every reason in his chart to have what I said. You'd have to have not bothered to read anything in the chart to have come to that conclusion and be cruel and have no empathy. We always talk in medicine about like the Swiss cheese effect, and we talk about that in a lot of things. So one person can make one mistake and another person can make another mistake. But if we're all kind of covering for each other in other ways, then you don't fall through the cracks. But if all those holes kind of align up, then you fall through the cracks. And it doesn't excuse the holes, but uh, it's an interesting point that maybe he's some awful person who has no empathy. But if he'd actually read the chart, then he would have known that, oh, this kid's actually been super sick before and been in the ICU a bunch of times. And oh, it was just in like three weeks ago. So maybe I shouldn't kick him out because he got transferred by ambulance from one of my colleagues who thought he was sick enough to get admitted. So he, it would have had to have been like a complete systemic medical failure. So anyway, we were in the hospital for over a week. And then um, I actually wrote a letter to the department head and just, you know, said that that's just unacceptable. And if that had been somebody else, they could have gone home and then said, well, my baby's not really that sick and their kid could have died of influenza. I know that's an experience that a lot of people have. And again, every time I read you and every time as I went through the book, the fact that you are a medical doctor and have these issues, I can't even imagine 
what people who aren't who face the same exact issues that you did? Yeah, I, I think a lot about that. You know, I had sepsis after my kids were born. It was a very complicated affair. And nobody believed I was ill. I was being treated for an infection with antibiotics, and I was getting worse, not better. And people accused me of being hysterical because my kids were sick and in the intensive care unit. And I'm like, no, I'm actually just having an appropriate response to being hypoxic. (laughs) And so, again, if it could happen to me, it could happen to every person. And think about what happens if you have, you're facing racism or economic insecurity or you don't speak the language. There's so many ways that it can be hard to advocate for yourself or there's a domestic violence situation, so you're afraid to bring something up. I mean, there's so many ways. And so I was really mindful of that when I was writing the book, The Vagina Bible, because I know as a doctor, there are certain words that I can say that will make another doctor perk up. And I wanted to give people those words to use. If you have this, say this. If you have this going on, you can challenge your physician. And I wanted to give people the confidence, some of the confidence to speak up. And I was sort of mindful once someone wrote a, a woman wrote a comment on my blog. It's actually one of my favorite comments of all. It was a, a blog post about why you can have an IUD if you've never been pregnant. Because there's still, unfortunately, a significant percentage of OBGYNs who don't know that it doesn't matter if you've been pregnant or not. An IUD is fine. And her OBGYN told her she couldn't have one because she hadn't been pregnant. And she'd printed off my blog post and brought it in and slammed it down on the table and said, well, Dr. Gunter says I can have one. And she got her <laughs> IUD. That's great. Uh, so, well, you you started to answer my, my next question because I wanted to get to your book. Why did you decide to write it? Again, I guess we've, we've gone through a little bit of that, but elaborate a little more and talk about your target audience because I found it interesting who, who your audience is. Yeah. So – I, you know, I've been writing about myths and women's health online for a long time, and I'm sort of known as the you put what where and who told you to do that kind of doctor. And I I had this couple of days in a row where I just saw a patient. I run a, I run a clinic specifically for vaginal and vulvar health conditions where I'd seen five or six women in a row who I told them things that to me just seemed intuitive that everybody should know. And obviously, this is what I do for a living, so what I think is intuitive is going to be different. And all of these women, and I never fault the patients for not being able to find the information. The fault is the system. The fault is where the information is. And each one of them said, how did I not know that? How did I not know that? How did I not know that? I heard that like six or seven times in a row. And then I just started like thinking, how do you not know that? How, like, where are all the misinformation steps? How are we at this point in the year 2019 where we have the internet of all things? Right. And you can't get that information. And I was sitting in my office and I was looking around and I was looking at this textbook that I still use called Blaustein's textbook of female pathology or genital pathology. I'm I'm screwing up the title. Sorry. Sorry, Blaustein's. Um, (laughs) But uh, John Hopkins, I think that's where it's published. And uh, But it's a great book on pathology of the genital tract. And I still go to it. I still open it and because it's devoid of all the clickbait and the junk online. And I was looking at that and I thought, women need a textbook. They need a textbook. I'm going to write a textbook. And then I realized it was too much to do both the upper and lower reproductive tract. So I thought, I'm going to write women a textbook, write everybody a textbook on the vagina and vulva. So when they see junk, they can stop and say, wait, 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 let's see what Gunter says about that. One of the themes I noticed throughout the book was there isn't a lot of research on that. I think you go for five or six 
maybe maybe more different places. Now, you go all the way back, which I loved, to the ancient Greeks <laughs> and Hippocrates in explaining that at the time, since all doctors were men and it was deemed insensitive or inappropriate for a man to touch a woman outside of a marital relationship. And I have to say one of the things that I found amazing was um, or even dissect female cadavers, yeah, which I think is taking the Graham rule or whatever it is know, right? to an extreme. Explain how women's health has been mansplained since right. the dawn of recorded history and how misinformation about women's reproductive health is rooted in this misogyny. Well, I think that if you deem women unimportant or they're just the same as men, you know, you probably wouldn't see any reason you need to dissect their bodies. And if they're unimportant to you, learning about them is also going to be unimportant. And I wanted to go back that far because so many of the alternative medicine providers are always referencing ancient treatments. And I wanted to show that, you know, the ancient stuff isn't so good. Um, and well, it's everybody, just, yeah, everybody gets the Hippocratic Oath wrong and everything else, so they're not going to get this right. Right, exactly. <laughs> and just how, like, women's bodies have been weaponized since the beginning of time and really ever Every culture, I mean, women are considered impure once they start getting their period. You know, that period period blood is toxic. That's used to exclude women from religious services, from society. You know, they're told they're unclean. They need to and you can pick whatever religion or culture or society, and there's all different ways to clean yourself. And I think that it's a pretty easy way to keep half the population oppressed if you can find something that's really obviously different about them. And this idea that um, that menstrual blood or that the uterus is toxic, the fact that that myth still persists, I think, is such an example of the strength of the patriarchy. Because if you take all medicine out of it, if you say, I'm just going to talk about this from a common sense standpoint, where does an embryo implant in the lining of the uterus, if that was toxic, how does an embryo survive there? If right. that's a toxic environment that needs to be cleaned, if menstruation is a sign of of sort of uterine ill health or uterine toxicity, how is it? That's the blood that's supposed to feed an embryo. That makes absolutely no common sense. And yet that myth is so hard to undo. And we even see it now. We see Instagrammers talking about dieting to lose weight so they don't get their period because your period is full of toxins. I mean, that's so harmful. And that's being presented as empowerment. How does the mainstream media framing of women's health issues how does it affect public perception? There's two issues. So you can have great content, but but we all know that strange headlines or bizarre headlines get attention. And so you see a lot of great, re wonderful reporters who've done a ton of amazing work have their piece undone by, you know, a horrible header or a horrible lead. So there's that. I think that the news is trying to get clicks. They're trying to get attention and that's how they get paid. And I get that. But we have to all do better and, you know, demand change so we don't have sensationalized headlines. But I also think that there is kind of a lack of good science journalism because there's so many financial constraints in news organizations that they can't all have people who have done fellowships in science journalism. If you take someone who's never covered science and ask them to write about a study, you're going to get a totally different piece than if you get someone who's done the MIT Night School of Journalism, right? right. So you're going to get two totally different pieces. So I think that we want our journalists to have experts just like, I don't want my son's heart surgery done by a general pediatrician. 
right? I want the general pediatrician to look after the things the general pediatrician is an expert in, and I want his cardiac surgeon to look after the things the cardiac surgeon is an expert in. And I think that we should actually demand that of our news as well because it's super important. And we see this weaponization of of lies with abortion and contraception, and it's very damaging. I mean, you know, with the Hobby Lobby case, we have a Supreme Court that said your belief that a medication causes an abortion is enough for you allowed to deny it. And it's this is science. It's not belief. Has this gotten worse in the electronic, in the social media age, or has it gotten better? I mean, again, you talked from the ancient Greeks, and I loved there was another part where you explain that some of these things were done a little bit better in the Victorian era, but because it was the Victorian era, people didn't pay attention. Has the proliferation of myths, lies, and all this stuff gotten worse? I think, yes, simply by the fact that it hasn't gotten better because we have the tools for it to be better, right? right? So everybody has a library in their pocket. Every single person with a cell phone has a library in their back pocket, a library for every single thing, and yet we can't find the information. So I would think if you were to take somebody from the 1940s who the only source of information is the radio and the print newspaper – Right? right Now, maybe they're only going to get a narrow view and they're not going to be exposed to all views, but they don't have the possibility to look up anatomy textbooks. They don't have the possibility. Right. Like, they just don't even have that possibility. And yet we have all this possibility and, and we're sort of stalled in a lot of medical lies. I mean, we still see this, you know, claim about infanticide, which is a complete lie. It's absolutely a lie. And yet, because women's bodies are so politicized, it's become a talking point for the Republicans. And we have this phenomenon called the illusory truth effect, which I talk a bit about in the book. And we all mistake repetition for accuracy. So in our 24-7 news cycle, if you have headlines repeating sort of these lies about infanticide over and over again, even if the actual piece takes it all apart and explains why that's not going on, well, yeah, I mean... I sometimes only read the headlines. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. Yeah. So it's only if we know this illusory truth effect is there, the internet, the, our Facebook feeds, our Instagram feeds, our Twitter feeds, throwing the same headlines at us over and over again, seeing it on the Chirons, on you know Fox or CNN or wherever. Of course, we're, we're in the era of fake news. And I really feel we've gone through the age of information. We're sort of stalled in the age of misinformation. What is the difference between the skeptical distrust of the medical community, industry, establishment, and those who propagate conspiracy theories? Just give us a little bit about that because I think it's an important distinction you make. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating to me how much overlap there is with sort of conspiracy theories in medicine. And uh, we know that Interestingly enough, people who believe in medical conspiracy theories like vaccines causing autism, which they don't, or, you know, fluoride messing with your brain or your bra, getting Wi-Fi, I don't know, all these weird things. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's from Goop, right? So we know that people who believe in conspiracy theories are more likely to buy supplements. So if you're a big natural or a big wellness, you're kind of invested in conspiracy theories, aren't you? So the common link, I would say, between politicians who are also promoting pseudoscience is that pseudoscience can be used to advance political agendas. So you can, you know, lie about contraception, you can lie about abortion, you can lie about bodies, you can also lie about products or sort of stoke conspiracy theories to also to move 
product with Big Natural. And so it's very fascinating to me, kind of the overlap and how both wellness and the patriarchy do use pseudoscience to advance agendas. Is there anything the medical community is doing to fight back? Again, doctors like yourself, obviously, you've written a book. But is there anything institutionally that they're doing to try to fight all of your critiques are so important because, like you said, they repeat the lies over and over again. And is it in education, in training? You happen to be a doctor who can communicate extraordinarily well. As you know, most doctors aren't, don't do that. I think that there are several ways to approach this. I think, and thank you very much. Thank you. My kids would say that I'm an overcommunicator. <laughs> <laughs> What's the evidence for unloading the dishwasher, Mom? <laughs> the evidence is you will not have dinner if you don't unload. Uh, so I think that medical schools and residencies and training programs have to do a better job, first of all, at helping doctors communicate with patients and helping us see bias so we're not continuing it, right? So you have to look at why do people turn from traditional, from, from evidence-based medicine to alternative medicine. They turn because they're not being heard in many times. Right. So we have to figure out why people are not being heard. Um, maybe they've been harmed by traditional medicine. Again, maybe they're harmed because of systemic racism or other issues. So we have to we have to correct those issues. But we also have to teach doctors better how to communicate, I think, publicly, because the health of the public is also our concern. I think that many schools could do better jobs of those things. I think they could also do better jobs in training doctors how to do more advanced communication with the media. So what happens a lot of doctors, like I was interviewed for a piece and they wanted to talk to a couple of my friends so they could know what I was like going through training. And we're both physicians. And they were both panicked after they got off the call with the reporter. Well, well, what if she misquoted me? What if I said the wrong thing? And they were just panicked that they didn't have any media training. They had no idea how to communicate. And so sometimes I'll read these bizarre quotes in articles and I'll think, oh, I know what happened. That doctor just didn't know what they were doing. They got panicked. And just like, I don't know how to do heart surgery. Like, I think that we need to start looking at media communications and communicating with the public as either a track or an additional kind of training component that we can do, just like journalists can go and do extra training and extra fellowship in, you know, science journalism. So I think that that we should be encouraging that. And I don't know why it hasn't happened because universities have schools of journalism and they have medical schools. Give me a call, somebody. I'll set it up for you. <laughs> where do you see on a positive note, where do you see the most movement to combat the medical misinformation about women's health? Well, I see Other a, than your book. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, I see a lot of just wonderful grassroots movements, and I see a lot of really empowered younger women. I see a lot of younger women speaking up, and that's so wonderful to hear from women that they'll say, oh, I, I, saw, I read your words, and I decided I was going to go out and do something about it, or just hearing what, what young women are doing and speaking up, and also a lot of young men, too. There's a lot of allies that are working together. And so I think that I'm quite hopeful, and certainly a lot of younger people are, you know, very savvy on some of the other social media platforms. And so I'm hoping that that people are just really taking up the mantle of facts matter, that you can't be an empowered patient without having factual information. And that, I think, is kind of my – the sort of my core belief is that informed consent and that you can't make informed consent about a decision if you have misinformation or disinformation. And if you have all of the facts and you choose not to do that, well, great. That's your body and your choice, but then you're making a factual decision. So I'm, I'm hoping that that message resonates with people. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. The book is called The Vagina Bible. It's by Dr. Jen Gunter. And thank you so much for coming. And it's for not just for women. 
It's for everybody. It's for women, for men, for trans people, non-binary. I really tried to be as inclusive as possible in a book. I mean, you can't write a thousand pages. So, but I, you know, I have, I really wanted to, to make sure that this book spoke to as many people as possible. And I, and I hope I've done that. And I'm going to keep speaking, hopefully, um, in other ways as well. Well, I think you've succeeded. Thank you very much. And please keep doing what you're doing. It's really important. Thank you. Adam, I know you wanted to tell our listeners about a great new podcast. Yes, Katie, it's The Election Ride Home. Some have called the 2020 election a battle for America's soul. Well, if you want to keep up with the latest developments on that important battle, this is the podcast for you. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail that day. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What the polls say? It's a 15 to 20-minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be looking at your phone 12 times a day. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. It's a great listen. That's the Election Ride Home podcast, every day at 5 p.m., available from your podcast provider. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.